When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we are going to be talking to Dr. Lebron Ortiz about his book. Uh, he is a formal, former mechanic, a practicing engineer, philosopher, and amateur photographer whose philosophical writing is preoccupied with marronage, revolt, violence, narcoculture, suicide, and temporality. His book, Filosofia de Cimarronaje, which we'll discuss today, was awarded the first honorable mention for the Essay Prize 2021 by Penn Club Puerto Rico. He is currently working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras campus. Pedro, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Can you talk to us a bit about this book, where it came from, um, what your background is in terms of the writing of it, and any other information that you think might be relevant? Sure. Um, so first of all, you know, thanks for for inviting me and for, for having me. Um, so I guess you could say, you know, my relationship to the academy in general and academic writing, um, it's a little weird, um, not traditional, I guess you could say. You know, my I formally trained as a mechanical engineer, and that's how I earn a living. Um, but then I got into philosophy. I did a master's degree in philosophy first out of curiosity, really. I was never really a good student, um, in school, particularly in high school. Um, didn't really care much about reading or writing. Um, but after high school, once I was studying engineering, you know, there's a, a borders, next to, you know, where I used to live. So I used to spend my time there and just got interested in, in some of the books I was supposed to read in high school that I didn't. I was like, well, let me, you know, probably check it out. Um, kind of after I was out of high school and, um, I kind of got drawn into like certain philosophical themes, I guess you could say in certain, uh, works of fiction, um, like Dostoevsky, for example. Right. Um, and then I decided, well, let me read some actual philosophy, you know, quote unquote. Um, and I tried reading some Nietzsche and I just, I, I couldn't figure it out. And then I said, all right, well, I need to actually, you know, have somebody break this down for me. Um, and I had a, a neighbor or my mom has a neighbor. I was a retired uh, art professor at the University of Puerto Rico. And she kind of told me like, look, you know, you should probably go interview with the director of the philosophy department, so on and so forth. Um, so that's how I got into it, you know, into philosophy. And then this book in particular, it, it's really, it came about in a really contingent way, in a really random way. Um, there's a, a bookstore near the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Piedra campus, called Libreria Magica. Um, and if you're familiar, you know, with that campus and with that bookstore, you know, it's, it's importance. Right. And, um, you know, I live two hours away from campus. I live on the West side of the Island in Moca. Um, so it's quite a drive when I was studying and sometimes I'd make it to, to the campus a little bit early. Um, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half early, uh, before class starts. So I would go to the bookstore, right? And just like look at stuff. 
and I came across one book on slave revolts. And I found that particularly interesting because nobody had ever talked to me about that, right? And then, you know, as I was getting into philosophy, I came across the Caribbean Philosophical Association, and, and there was a conference that year in New York, and my old mentor uh, and the director of the department kind of told me, hey, you should, you know, start getting into the, the, the conference scene, like it'd be beneficial for you, so on and so forth. So submitted an abstract. To my surprise, it got accepted. So I was questioning if the organization was legit. I was like, how do they accept my abstract? You know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So when it got accepted, started looking into that. And uh, the president at the time, Neil Roberts, you know, I did some some Googling um, on him. And I came across his book, Freedom is Marinage, right? So I was reading this book on slave revolts and kind of learning a little bit the history of Marinage. And then I came across this book where somebody's thinking about, you know, Marinage philosophically. And to me, that opened up, you know, just a world of possibilities with respect to what what you could think about philosophically. You see what I'm saying? Because particularly University of Puerto Rico, it's really, you know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Nietzsche, you know, so on and so forth, you know, just. But then to see this book, it just blew my mind. And and that's when I decided, OK, I want to do my thesis on that. Right. And kind of in conversation with Neil Roberts and his book. So that's how this book came about. It was really just a conversation uh, and a product of coming across Neil's work and some other things I was reading at the time, just completely, completely random. Right. So that's kind of how it came about. Yeah. Great. Thanks for that uh, background info. And um, yeah, it is really important to do work that's not in the academy and that is kind of alongside or even just completely out of um, and bringing in that different approach and different perspective is great. Um, and so the book is written in Spanish, right? So it's entirely in Spanish. Obviously, you have some phrases that you borrow from English from certain you know, writers that you've read. Um, so let's talk about the term cimarronaje, which obviously the English marinage comes from the French marronage. So there's some linguistic kind of stuff happening here. Um, but cimarronaje is more than just the act of fleeing slavery or colonialism is one definition. Um, but could you talk briefly about what is meant by cimarronaje beyond just, you know, runaway, right? Uh, cimarron is translated as a runaway slave usually, but that's not really accurate. So could you talk to us a little bit about the more surrounding uh, philosophy, if you will? Yeah, so I guess you could say historically, kind of as you're pointing out, Marnage has been divided kind of into two different categories, if you will, petite and grand marinage. Petite marinage being, you know, it's kind of temporary flight from the plantation, but eventually, you know, the individual comes back or what have you. Grand marinage being, um, you know, flight for extended periods or permanently, often in groups, establishing, you know, societies or communities, you know, a ways away from the plantation. Um, but what I was trying to think through in my book, and it kind of relates to the fact of me working in corporate America, right? And me questioning, you know, it's something I have to do to earn a living, but how do I not kind of lose my soul in the process of, you know, working in corporate America? Um, and how do I not embody that type of uh, kind of normative existence that they require from you to be a productive employee or whatever the case may be? So kind of grappling with that as well. So. So to me, it's, it you know, it's just from that perspective, marinage is that it's kind of a, a rejection 
Um, you could say flight from that normative existence, right? That, that kind of normative way of being in the world and with others. So in the book, I engage, you know, obviously I was mentioning, you know, Robert's work. He develops a concept based off, you know, Fanon, uh, sociogenic marinage. And he kind of sees the uh, Haitian Revolution as uh, paradigmatic of that, right? Um, which is essentially, I mean, it, it's revolution, right? That's, that's what that is. Um, and what I wanted to think about was, you know, if you look at the Haitian Revolution and you and you take it back, right? Like Leslie Monigot said, you know, the Haitian uh, thinker, the Haitian Revolution was a product of a mutation of Marinage, or Marinage kind of mutated into, uh, you know, what the Haitian Revolution was. So I wanted to think about that aspect of it, right? Like Marinage more in the quote unquote strict sense. Like what does, what's, what's the, how do we think about that? And in Neil's work, um, you know, because he's, he's focusing particularly on the Haitian Revolution, I wanted to think about this other, like what came before the Haitian Revolution, right? And then evolved into that revolution. And to me, it's that, right? And kind of in retrospect, you know, at the time, Sylvia Winter's work was not in my bibliographical constellation. But I think if I would have came across her work sooner, I probably wouldn't have written the book. Because it's like, I'm saying all this stuff in the book, but just, you know, Sylvia Winter's notion of, of man as a particular genre of the human that overrepresents itself. And then there's other genres of the human and other ways of expressing that humanity. I said all this stuff in the book and I was trying to get at what she said. <laughs> so, but that's what I think about when I think about Marinage. Yeah, that's great. Um, the surrounding context is very important as a historian. I'm like, you need that context. Um, and just for background context, um, Haitian revolution, uh, 1791 to 1804, really long struggle against the Spanish colonizers in um, Saint-Domingue, which eventually was established as the Republic of Haiti by people of African descent, uh, mostly the enslaved, but also some uh, non-enslaved. They called them mulatos. Um, and that background is really important. And I mean, maybe, you know, Sylvia Winters is Jamaican. Um, so she writes in English. So maybe this is kind of the parallel Spanish um, conceptual conceptualization of um, Cimarronaje or Marinage. Um, she writes about Marinage specifically in English. But, you know, maybe that's some type of, you know, collaboration almost um, across languages. And that is something that I think about a lot, too, because. I write about the Caribbean, I write about Cuba, so the Spanish Caribbean specifically, and I'm always thinking like, okay, what's in English that I have and what's in Spanish? And are those two works that are in conversation, are they in conversation with each other or is there work that's being developed parallel? Um, and obviously a lot of the people that you read are writers, thinkers who are writing in English and then you draw those in, right, into your work. Um, so I guess what was the political or otherwise decision to write it in Spanish? And are you planning on having it translated? Are you going to translate it yourself? Or do you want to, like, was that an intentional decision to have it be in Spanish and not in English? That's a really good question. Um I guess the, the main intent of doing it in in Spanish, it's it's weird because like English is my first language. Um, so I tend to think in English and then write in Spanish and it tends to be a challenge for me. And actually when I was working on the master's thesis, my uh, advisor kind of picked up on that. She was like, you're thinking in English and you could tell because you're translating stuff quite literally. Don't do that. <laughs> so... It, part of it was I wanted to challenge myself in that way, 
right? So just write, write it in Spanish, um, just as an academic exercise. Um, but then the other part of it too was, is very much as you're saying, it was a political decision to publish this, not only in Spanish, but you know, the, the, the publisher, it's a small nonprofit, um, press here in Puerto Rico, Editora Educación Emergente. And not only that, right. Um, they're also based on the West side of the Island, right. Um, in, in Puerto Rico in general, the metropolitan area, San Juan area, the capital tends to be always like the locus of, you know, uh, uh, whether it be the conference, you know, circuit or, you know, just, uh, publication, just all, you know, and people forget, like there's work being done outside of, you know, San Juan, right. So to me, it was really important to do that because in, in my mind, um, you know, this is, I didn't even, I never thought I was going to write a book ever, you know, that was never on my, in my plans to write a book. So I thought, okay, this is probably going to be my first and only books. So I want it to be in Spanish, be published in Puerto Rico and available in bookstores to where, you know, cause that's who I'm writing for. Right. I'm writing for, you know, potentially a kid that, you know, may come across it, might see it. I mean, they sell this at the mall near, you know, the bookstore, the mall close to where I live. Right. It's not like a university bookstore. It's like, you see what I'm saying? Like next to the cookbooks and like the popular, you know, literature, they sell my book. So I'm thinking, okay, if some kid comes across it, looks at it, finds an interesting reason, learn some from it. And that, you know, that's, that's what it's about for me. So. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, um, it shows that your goals are very different from, um, what goals often are, which are of reach and are of, um, you know, scope in terms of who's going to read this the most and who's, where's it going to sell. So, um, yeah, that's great to hear. And, that can even be, you know, a version of Marinage or Cimarronaje uh, in itself. You could even argue being outside of the academy and of the the kind of hegemonic domination of the academy and or just power in general. Um, so very um, intentional decision, I would say there. Um, rotating back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier, you mentioned sociogenic cimarronaje or, and then also in the book, you talk about analectico or analectic, uh, cimarronaje. So I was wondering if you could talk about how those two are different, because that's a thread that comes through the book where you're comparison, comparing them, but also talking about their vaivén. Um, they're back and forth or they're kind of oscillation into and through each other. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. So at the time I was, um, I come across Enrique Dussel, Filosofía La Liberación. Um, so it's really a product of, of that, right? Um, of the fact that I was reading his work like right after I had read or right before I had read, you know, Neil Roberts work. And I just kind of put those two in conversation. So, you know, for Enrique Dussel, the way I, I read him, um, and that, in that book, Filosofía de la Liberación, he has this concept, um, el momento analéctico or the analectical moment which is like this primary affirmation, you know, it's not, it, it, it has to do with, uh, you know, dialectics and what have you. But essentially what he says is that prior to the negation, there's a primary affirmation, right? So like if we think about enslavement um, and resistance to enslavement, it's not just the negation of a negation, right? The negation of this process or system that negates one's humanity. It's not just that, but there's a primary affirmation of one's humanity that comes before that, right? Um, so 
think it through that, which also relates to, again, somebody whose work was not in my bibliographical constellation at the time, but I probably wanted to have to have written the book is, you know, like Cedric Robinson, for example, right? Who says you had these individuals that were kidnapped from Africa and enslaved. And when you look at the black radical tradition, it's not merely, you know, uh, you know, for example, a group of Marxists that happen to be black, right? Or, you know, they have their own traditions, their own cosmologies, their own, you know, so on and so forth. So that's that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I spoke about analectical marinage. It's it's that, right? It's it's you know, distinct ways of being and knowing that are, uh, how could you put it, of those individuals, right? Of those peoples of African descent, right? Those traditions, those customs. Whereas the way I interpreted sociogenic marinage is kind of that direct confrontation with, with the state, with power, so on and so forth. And really, I guess what you could, you know, what I was really trying to think through is the history of marinage in general, when you look at it, right, particularly Latin America, is outright warfare, right? When we look at the Great Dismal Swamp, for example, and some other places, like, they, there, there was no direct confrontation in that way. So I wanted to think through some of that, like, what does that mean? You know, how do we think about that? Um, and part of it too, I think is, I don't know, I don't know if Fanon is really useful to think about marinage with, right? So like when you look at black skin, white mass, for example, you know, that famous passage about the zone of non-being and so forth, like he's not saying that you know, black folk are locked in the zone of non-being. He doesn't say that, right? He says, you know, they're not afforded that possibility of descending into the hell that is the zone of non-being, which is the indeterminacy of freedom, right? Because black subjects are overdetermined by that historical racial schema. And he says, in the majority of cases, right? It's not, you know, every black person period point blank that's not what he said in the majority of cases and if i recall correctly there may be even a footnote somewhere or maybe in the body of the text itself where he says like oh you know black folks in the u.s it's a little different because they they struggle right like they're fight he's thinking about a particular context right black folk in france or martinique so on and so forth and i think marinage is is it's not it, you know uh, it's evidence, right? There's an evidence there that the what Nelson Maldonado recalls a coloniality of being, it's not ubiquitous, right? It's not, you know, uh, 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 how could you put it? Yeah, it's not ubiquitous, right? Dehumanization is not, you know, we, we can't say that you know, black folk, racialized folk, you know, folk from the global South, however you want to put it, internalize that, you know, dehumanization. Like you, you, you can't speak on those terms, I guess is what I was trying to say with that. Or what I was struggling to think through, you know, and I'm still struggling to think through. Right. And maybe Fanon is more of a jumping off point in some ways where, um, he might be a point of departure, but yeah, he might not give us an answer um, fully, at least, um, in terms of the question of what do you do as a racialized, colonialized subject who is still suffering from the afterlives of that. Um, and kind of another very important concept in the book that you start with and kind of bring throughout along with the, the sociogenic and analectic forms of marinage or cimarronaje, um, you talk about el mundo de la eromodernidad, so the, the world of Euro-modernity, 
um, and then the totalidad of that, so the totality of that world, and then also the mundo otro, which is just the other world completely, um, and la exterioridad, so exteriority. Could you talk about what both of those mean, what you mean by them, how they relate, and why that is important to your philosophy? Um, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I wish I would have read Sylvia Winter at the time, <laughs> you know, because it's like what I was trying to get at is, is it's what she talks about, right? She talks about man, you know. And, and everything that entails, you know, that that's what I mean by that world of your own modernity. You know, it's man and, and the normative existence that that kind of is imposed on folks. Um, and then that exteriority for me is is that is, is, you know, a different type of existence, way of being and knowing, you know, is pretty much what it comes down to. And you probably read her 2003 essay, I'm assuming. Um, yeah, I just reread it man. actually yesterday. Yeah, I just I was rereading it. I just finished it yesterday. Mm. Um, you know, so. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I first read it about four, five years ago now, and I come back to it every once in a while and try to understand it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot more. She's... There's a lot more now with the, the essays I got published on uh, – What's the name of the book? I think we got to sit down and talk about culture. Hmm. Oh yeah, I haven't read that yet, but I've heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So there's, there's a lot. There's a lot, and I think they're editing her Black Metamorphosis as well. Yes, is- her unpublished manuscript. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um. Yeah. So we'll see what they end up doing with that because that might answer some of these questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. But even though you know you didn't read Winter at the time. Um, you do talk about a vision of voluntad de vida de la comunidad or so community will to life maybe is a translation there. Um, and then the connection to decoloniality. So obviously following Maldonado Torres a lot in who's a decolonial thinker. What, what is that vision, um, Voluntad de vida de la comunidad. What does that mean for you, and how does that collect connect to a decoloniality? I mean, I guess really briefly, I was thinking about violence, right? You know, like Walter Rodney when he talks about, you know, by what measure of morality could you compare the violence of the oppressed to the violence of the oppressors? or something to that effect. I was thinking through that really is ultimately what it comes down to and the fundamental right to self-defense, right? That, you know, communities have in the face of, you know, annihilation essentially, right? When confronted with an existential threat, you have the right to defend yourself and your community by any means necessary. So that's kind of what I was trying to, what I was, you know, wanted to think through there. Um, and I threw this word out there, and obviously you cite a lot that has to do with it, but decoloniality, or, and even Maldonado Torres and the coloniality <laughs> of being, what, how would you define those? What does decoloniality mean? What does to decolonize mean in your, in your mind? That's a that's a complicated question. <laughs> that's a whole. I think that's a whole podcast episode. You know, to get into that. Um, and I I say it's a complicated question because it seems to me that now it's nobody knows what that means. Decoloniality means. Nobody knows what it means, you know. People just slap it on whatever to get their paper published and, you know, or conference paper accepted because they're in the hustle to get tenure. So, you know what I mean? So what really does it mean? Um, 
you know, and, and it's funny because there's another Puerto Rican um, thinker who's important in, uh, you know, decoloniality theory, Ramon Grofogue. He uh, published a book recently with Akal. Um, I forget the name of it, but uh, recently published. And, you know, I was looking at seeing some of the presentations of the book. And he's kind of criticizing that same tendency as well, where he's like, look, you have some folks that, you know, in the name of decoloniality or whatever, were, you know, supporting empire you know, and supporting, you know, coups in Bolivia and this and that, right? Um, so it's, you know, I, I've personally, I've kind of moved away from using those terms since just because now, I mean, it, it has no, for me, no explicatory power anymore, you know? Um, but in general, you know, if we talk about decoloniality, to me, right, the way I think about it is, uh, you know, decolonization um, materially, right, politically, symbolically, um, you know, and I think, and, and again, coming back to, you know, so winter, I think where a lot of discourses or thinkers or theories or texts or whatever kind of fall short is that they continue to, to recycle, you know, that, that the same narrative, um, you know, but in a different way, you know, and, and that's why winter was critical, you know, of Marxism, liberalism, you know, and, and gender theory, right. Feminism, so on and so forth. But that bourgeois, you know, Eurocentric, you know what I mean? Um, so for me, you know, when I think about decoloniality, it's that, right? It's, it's, you know, but it, it, yeah, nobody really knows what that means anymore, I think, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of like intersectionality, but I won't get into that, but uh, it's kind of like that. Nobody, nobody knows what it means. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of a cheeky question because it's like, can you even define it? And that's why I ask everyone to define it, you know, differently according to their own understanding, and also that can involve a reaction against what is happening, um, which is tricky. Um, and the neoliberal kind of, in some ways, um, commodification of that, um, claiming of that, and then, you know, tainting of that. Um, I was thinking about that because I was, you know, looking at the concept of hegemony for my dissertation, then I was reading about it. I was like, okay, what's been happening with the idea over the last 50 years? And now people are saying, well, the term itself is becoming hegemonic because of how it's being used and no one really knows what it means. And I'm like, oh, great. Um, so it's like meta hegemonic. So maybe the, the same thing's happening with decoloniality where it's like decolonizing decoloniality and then in an intersectional way, but then also what does that mean? Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's I think, like the perpetual problem. <laughs> yeah. I'm always skeptical. I'm always skeptical when, you know, institutions, um, are quick to adopt and to embrace, you know, certain concepts, frameworks, whatever theories, um, you know, I'm, you got to be suspicious of that always, right? Like you look at intersectionality, for example, you, know, you had the CIA, you know what I mean? Coming out with the recruitment videos and stuff, you know, using the same kind of terminologies, right? Or there's other missile defense uh, manufacturers, right? Missile manufacturers that, you know, have employed those same terms, right? So you, to me, you gotta, you gotta always be suspicious when you see that, right? You gotta take a pause and be like, wait a minute, what is it about this theory that's making it so co-optable, right? Um, so. Yeah. So do you feel like ideas of 
such as Voluntad de Vida de la Comunidad, do you feel like that is at least gets us farther or is maybe potentially better than decoloniality in any way? Or do you feel like it falls into the same, you know, because it's been two years since you, or even more since you wrote the book. So do you feel like that has changed where you're like, I don't know if that's a solution anymore, or do you still kind of see that as something that's helpful at least? Well, it was helpful for me at the time, you know, I mean, personally, I, I, I still believe in, you know, the right to self-defense. Right. And I think we've, we've seen an uptick you know, the past, at least since the start of the pandemic, um, after, you know, uh, George Floyd was assassinated, Breonna Taylor, you know, we saw that, we saw those protests, we saw an uptick um, in the U.S. with respect to, for example, black gun ownership, for example, um, in Puerto Rico as well. You know, we've seen uh, there was a relaxation of the gun laws. Puerto Rico used to have the strictest gun laws in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. Where to conceal carry, you had to go and plead your case in front of a judge. I don't think any other state had that. Um, there's a relaxation of those laws, and now it's easier for you to get your, you know, concealed carry license and what have you. Um, so there's been an uptick as well. And and personally, you know, I am a fan of that. Right. I mean, if that's what you feel you need to do to protect yourself and your family, by all means, you know, as long as you do it responsibly, you know. So I still believe in, you know, that the fundamental will to life and right to self-defense, you know, when faced with an existential threat. But now if that specific term that I used, you know, in the book, if, if that's still, you know, I probably wouldn't use that term, you know, I don't think I would use any term specifically. I think I fell into the trap of, you know, trying to come up with these neat concepts, you know what I mean? To, you know, say stuff that other folks have already said and you're like, oh, I'm just going to call it this and put a little label on it. And, you know, I think I fell into some of that, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, but if it, you know, as it pertains or relates to decoloniality, I mean, that, you know, I don't know, it's probably not as useful, you know, uh, maybe it is. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I guess it means that you grow as a thinker and as a person too, where you're just like, hmm, I thought that two and a half years ago and now I think something different and um people are more accepting of that now i feel like even just in the last five or ten years where they're like yeah growth is good and you don't have to be stuck in your thinking forever and it, it'd be it's better for it not to be this one kind of track that you wear in your head that you're just thinking the same thing all the time so you know i think i, I mean i do that too where i look back and i'm like what? <laughs> I don't I think there's a lot ago? of that though. I don't, you know, mm, honestly, I don't think enough. there's a lot of that in, in the academy. Yeah. Cause it's like, mm. you know, you have a brand at the end of the day. That's what it is. Right. You have a, a personal brand. You're known as a scholar of, you know, whatever, whatever label or framework. Right. And if there's something that kind of is going to mess up your brand and your position in the market of ideas, you know, because at the end of the day, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, I'm, it's absurd to me, like the amount of money that some folks get paid to like speak at universities, you know, like thousands, you know what I mean? Like thousands. And if there's something that's going to, you know, some idea that's going to inhibit you from, you know, being able to make that money, you know, you're not, you're not going to double back and say, ah, you know what, what I said was wrong. And then you're going to try to protect your position in, in the market and you're going to try to protect your brand. Um, and I think there's a lot of folks that, you know, kind of fall into that. They're not willing to say, ah, you know what, I said this, but, I, you know, I was wrong or now I'm thinking this way or they'll, they'll double down and say, you know, or they won't even engage other ideas. Like they won't even, you know, engage with other ideas that that'll 
you know, so it becomes ideological at that point, you know, becomes a dogma. So, you know, at least that's what I've seen, you know, from where I sit. So it's unfortunate, but I guess it is what it is. It's capitalism, right? Got to make the money. Yeah. And you can't ever discount that. You can't ever look past that in terms of why people do what they do or what, how things are set up or where the power is. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm lucky enough to at least know some people who are, you know, living with a bit more integrity, I guess. Um, but yeah, they think they are in the minority and they are fighting against something that it doesn't lend itself to that. And it's unfortunate. Um, if the goal really is human emancipation, human thriving, or how would you would conceive of that in terms of, you know, your focus on death, um, that you do take. Yeah. It's, it's hard to actually actualize that. And unfortunately a lot of people don't. Um, and we, we all fail at it. I feel like I fail at it too. And, um, it's a sobering reality. And so you, you mentioned earlier, so self-determination, uh, the term you use is uh, autogestion, uh, radical, so radical self-determination. Um, <laughs> I guess this is a, a kind of a reworking of that question again. Um, what does that look like? in community what does that look like in a world where we have all of these constraints that we can't deny we can't deny that we're constrained by capitalism or the oppressive kind of variations and um hegemony (laughs) of the academy and of other systems um or do you feel like that is now too idealistic i guess um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, so I guess it's important to note too, that, you know, I, I said before that the book was a product of my master's thesis. When I started really like thinking about it, putting a proposal together, um, I was doing the readings for it was in the first semester of the 2017 2018 school year. So I got into it for, you know, like a month, right? And then Hurricane Maria hit. So when I was talking, you know, or thinking through that question of obviously marinage, right? That, you know, the government was non-existent or in reality they were, you know, they were operating, but they were, you know, hiding um, uh, resources that, you know, folks would would have shipped to Puerto Rico, you know, supplies, things like that. They were actively working to hide those things and, and you know, to, to do what they do. Um, so you saw the necropolitics of the state at play, right? But in general, they were, they were absent, right? Like you wouldn't see necessarily cops on the street. You wouldn't like nothing, right? So, you know, a lot of, you know, communities were just left you know, to, to fend on their own. Um, there were folks that lost their houses and they were, you know, if there was an abandoned school that got shut down because that's, you know, the government had been doing that, shutting down schools like crazy. Um, you know, they would take over the school and turn it into, you know, uh, some apartments for a group of individuals and maybe lost their homes during the hurricane. So in that sense, autogestion, which... Um, translates to like a self uh, I don't I don't really have a great translation for it I know some other folks have you know translated in such a way that you know captures the spirit of it but uh they don't come to mind right now but it's kind of like a self if you were to do a Google translate it's like a self management or whatever. But that's not, it doesn't quite capture the spirit of what it is. And it's escaping me, some of the better translations. Um, 
But in essence, it's it's that, right? It's not depending on institutions, not depending on the government, on NGOs or anything like that. It's just a community coming together to, you know, autonomously, uh, you know, do X, Y, or Z, right? And we saw that during uh, Maria, you know, in the context of this, um, you know, folks coming together, cleaning up, you know, roads from, you know, cleaning up the debris, um, doing all those things. I think that's really important because without romanticizing it, right, because um, there could be problematic practices in that as well. But I think it functions as a laboratory, you know, to, to, to work out ways of relating to one another, you know. Um, I think it also relates to when we talk about, you know, uh, abolition, abolition or abolitionism. I think it also relates to that, right? Um, you know, how do we, how should we be in community in such a way that um, we support ourselves without having to depend on the government, but also at the same time, not letting the government off the hook, right? Which is, is part of not romanticizing it, right? So it's not necessarily a solution for decolonization because um, the state still, we need to make sure they do what they're supposed to do. But at the same time, it's an important tool um, to survive. So, yeah. Um, and on the ground, it's complicated. <laughs> Easier said than done. Um, so we've kind of talked about how you have, um, you know, grown as a thinker and you're still thinking, you're discovering new pieces, new ways of thinking about um, really important concepts like this. Are you working on something now that's like along these lines? Do you have writing projects that you are um, thinking of doing or are you going to write in like a dis different capacity, like more of a, um, like not necessarily a book, but another way, or do you want to write another book? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, so the, the, for the past maybe two, two or three weeks or so, and even, I guess it's like a post dissertation type slump, if you will. Um, there's that aspect of it, but also just seeing in general, some of the things we were talking about earlier about the Academy, um, you know, that's kind of like, I, you know, this makes me want to, or has made me want to disengage from the Academy in general and academic writing. Um, particularly because I don't get paid for this, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just kind of want to, but at the same time, it's like, uh, I also see it as a type of, as a, as an art form, you know, like philosophical writing, I see it more like art. Um, and in that sense, it's necessary for me. Like, I feel like I have to write if, if, if not to publish just to get you know, help me think about things and get things off my chest. Right. So in that sense, there is a, a book that I'm trying to work on. Um, that's tentatively titled an indestructible life. And that's a riff off a line in this novel titled, uh, slave old man by Patrick, uh, Shamoy from Martinique. I think that's how you pronounce his last name um, from Martinique. And it's essentially um, a novel about uh, Marinage, right? And there's one line in particular that I, I found I, I gravitate towards where, you know, the slave old man, no longer enslaved, right? Runs away from the plantation. Um, the kind of, you know, uh, slave owner, chases after him, whatever, with this dog. And, you know, this maroon now is facing this dog. And he says, you know, I, I don't really want to fight, but I'm possessed by an indestructible life. 
right? So what I want to think about a little bit in that in that in that book, if I ever get around to actually writing it, is how do we think about you know uh, blackness? How do we think about the lives of the colonized beyond their reduction to politics? Right? Like I don't I don't agree with this whole like quote unquote, you know, my existence is resistance or whatever, you know, like I don't necessarily, you know, necessarily agree with that. Um, so I want to think a little bit through that, um, which also relates to the question of revolt. I've been thinking about revolt lately, particularly when we think about the summer of 2019 in Puerto Rico. Um, we think about, of course, you know, uh, Globally, but, you know, in particular in the U.S., you know, in, in 2020, after Maude Arbery, you know, Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd were assassinated. Um, and we think about that. Um, and I also want to think a little bit about this violence and death in general in Puerto Rico. Um because this is, I mean, it really is a narco state, right? Um, you know, looking at statistics, I think it was last year, the year before, out of like 600 and some murders, like more than half are drug related. You know what I mean? And it's like constant, constant thing. Um, so thinking about some of that uh, as well. So I don't know if I'll ever get around to actually getting it together, but, you know, at least that's the aspiration. Yeah, important questions to be thinking about for sure. Um, and looking at that from a kind of holistic viewpoint, I think will be helpful for thinking about, you know, what to do about life as it is now, uh, which is not great sometimes, obviously. Um, well, um, I'm glad that this book has been written. I'm glad that that young kid who's going to pick it up in the library, um, you know, near where you live, um, I'm glad that's going to happen. Um, you know, and this book wasn't written for the Academy kind of in the stricter sense, and that's, you know, great, and we need that. So um, thanks so much for the book, and thanks for talking to me today, and um have a great rest of your day. Um, sign off and say bye. Have a good one. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me.